In episode 42 of Mosin at Large, we're looking ahead to Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference and finding out what you want to see in iOS 14. I'm following up on some of the issues discovered in our review of the Sonos Arc, and I've got some new Unify Ubiquity gear at Mosin Towers. Mosin at Large Podcast! You're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736 and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full Mosin at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. I always look forward to our weekly catch-ups. Thank you once again for being a part of it. If you've never heard Mosin at Large before, what a specially warm welcome to you. It's been a wonderful week in New Zealand. We have no one at all with COVID-19 in the country. And at midnight going into Tuesday morning, all the restrictions for New Zealanders came off. No more physical distancing, no more spare seats on planes, packed into sardines on the buses like we used to. And we're back to normal, with the exception of very strict border controls. You can only come into the country if you're a New Zealand citizen or you have some sort of governmental exception. But it does feel good to be back to normal. First, a bit of administrivia or housekeeping. Sometimes you go to conferences and they call it housekeeping, don't they? I do have a new email list, which will help you learn about what's coming up on Mosin at Large. And that way, even ahead of the live show, you can send in a contribution. It works really well for everybody because it means you have time to think about your response to anything we're going to be talking about. And on my side, I get to edit the material if necessary and become familiar with it as well, so everybody wins. If you would like to join this announcement-only email list, let me tell you three things. First, you would normally only receive one little message a week telling you what's coming up, so you're not going to get bombarded, you're not going to get spammed with irrelevant things. I'm the only one who can post to it. Second, on rare occasions, you might hear about other Mushroom FM things that I'm personally doing or some Zoom webinar I may hold or something like that in the future. So is anything to do with Mushroom FM activities that I'm personally doing or podcasting activity? For example, we published an extra episode the other day, which I'll talk about in a sec, and I will tell people about that as well. Third, you can bail out at any time. If you want Mosin at Large or my radio activities out of your life, then all you have to do is unsubscribe. It's an automated process. I won't even know when you arrive and I won't even know when you leave. So if you would like to get these announcements, then sign up now before you forget. You can send a blank email to media-subscribe 
at mosen.org. That's media-subscribe at M-O-S-E-N dot org. And you can just put subscribe in the subject if you need something to have in the subject line there. And you'll get an automated message back inviting you to confirm, reply to that message, and you're in. You're in. Media-subscribe at mosen.org. All right. Now, as I said, I did publish an extra episode of Mosin at Large on Thursday. That's episode 41, in which we had a look at the Sonos Arc. And I want to follow up with a couple of things relating to the Sonos Arc. The first is that for those not aware of the way that Sonos works, you can actually have two types of wireless system that your Sonos can connect to. One is your good old-fashioned Wi-Fi network like everything else in your house with Wi-Fi connects to. In Sonos's case, it's 2.4 gigahertz. So the older, more crowded version of Wi-Fi, but it does propagate better than 5 gigahertz because of the lower frequencies. The second wireless system is a proprietary mesh system that Sonos have developed, and they were using mesh technology long before it was a thing for consumer purposes in households. And the way you make this work is you either buy a special device called a Boost that you plug into your router, kind of like a little hub. It's not an audio device in itself. It's an electronic networking device. Or if you can get any of your Sonuses, or is it Sonai? Is that the plural? If you can get one of your Sonos devices to connect to your router with a wired Ethernet cable, that will create a Sonos mesh system. It is using an oldish protocol now, so it will work on most routers, but it may not work on all of them. Now, when we did the Sonos demo, I was almost certain that we were using a Sonos mesh wireless system. It turns out that we were not. We were using Wi-Fi because at some point, the Sonos that I thought was plugged into the router had been unplugged from the router, probably when I was doing some sort of experiment that I quickly forgot about. So we were using regular Wi-Fi. When I later, after the podcast was recorded, connected Sonos to the router and created a mesh network, a lot of my issues did actually clear up. I was able to save network groups. Things were running a lot more smoothly. This prompted me to take some exciting, drastic action, which I will talk about again in just a minute. But let me conclude the Sonos bit of this by following up on some of the discoveries that I made in that podcast. Specifically, our TV here at Mosin Towers, the Sony X8500G, has a big problem, Houston, at least if you're blind. When you enable the eARC feature, you can turn it off or you can set it to auto. And when you set the eARC port to auto, it tells you that you can't do that unless you disable the screen reader. This is extraordinary. It also says that it disables system sounds. And in thinking about this problem, you would think that they would simply, if there's a a problem there, they would just route the audio of the screen reader and system sounds back to the speaker of the TV itself. Just take that content away from the HDMI and put it on the speaker. What that means is that if you are a blind person and you want to hear lossless content, say from a Blu-ray disc in Atmos, You can't hear that on that TV if you've got your screen reader running. You'd need a sighted person to turn the screen reader off and then enable the eARC port and let you hear the content. Not an ideal situation at all. Now, I contacted Sony about this on Friday. They have now escalated the issue. 
I did manage to get through first-level tech support and have them understand the significance of this problem for me. But I also did another thing, and that was to contact the retailer that I bought this TV from on the 9th of May during lockdown. And I explained the situation and asked them whether there was anything that they could do for me, because obviously I had gone well beyond the 14-day period, and I explained that I'd been working with Sony to try and resolve this, and they were fantastic. So we complain a lot, don't we, when things go wrong? It's wonderful to be able to say in public a big thank you to the people at Noel Leeming in Tory Street in Wellington, where I bought this from, who really couldn't have been more accommodating once they understood just how significant this was. I mean, I bought this TV specifically for the eARC feature. Really, it does nothing much more. I mean, it has airplay, but we could live without airplay. We bought this specifically for a feature we now cannot use because of some weird accessibility limitation. So they agreed that if I could find another solution, they would, despite the time that has elapsed, let me take the TV back and swap it out. And I believe that we have some success with this. On Saturday morning, Heidi and I, in our intrepid geekdom, we had a whole geeky day yesterday, Saturday New Zealand time. First of all, we headed on off to No Leeming, and we were able to verify that the voice guide screen reader is now in Samsung New Zealand firmware. In the past, if you had set Samsung to New Zealand as your region, The voice guide feature wouldn't be there. It was really frustrating because that ruled Samsung out of contention for us. Now voice guide is there. And again, Noel Leeming were absolutely incredible. They got a soundbar for me and they plugged it into the HDMI eARC port. We ran voice guide in the store and then we enabled the eARC port. It was working just fine. It is working just fine. So all being well, With the assistance of Henry, the wonder son-in-law, we're going to bundle this relatively new Sony TV into his car on Tuesday, take it back, and come home with a bit more expensive Samsung TV. And if we do that, then we'll obviously put it through its paces and let you hear what that is like on Mosin at Large. But for now, and I mean, I will keep working with Sony on this and try and do a bit of advocacy on behalf of those who might want to get the Sony product, which overall is a really good one. But people need to be aware, if you want to use an eARC TV, you can't do it with the screen reader running, at least in that Sony. And I assume that is something that is in the firmware of all of the new TVs that Sony produce that have eARC. So beware. I will keep you posted on this intrepid journey. And in the afternoon, in yesterday afternoon, as I put this show together, Heidi and I were seriously geeking out. It has been an ambition of mine for a long time to switch the network gear at Mosin Towers to a pure Unify system. Unify is a range of products, routers, access points, gateways, other things, from a company called Ubiquity, which is an American company. I believe they're based in New York. They make enterprise-grade networking equipment and some people who are a bit serious about their internet in their house have also adopted it. Ubiquity also do a consumer level product called Amplify and if you're looking for a simple system that's very accessible and really reliable then I highly recommend the Amplify range. It's a mesh based system. 
So gone, gone are the days of those horrible lossy Wi-Fi extenders. And now you can get these wireless mesh products. Netgear does one. Of course, there's Google Wi-Fi in some parts of the world. There's Eero. And there is also this Ubiquiti Amplify stuff. Very good quality gear, but it wasn't really suitable for our use case because in Mosin Towers, we have these little network outlets in all the parts that we need them. We laid Cat6 cables some years ago now so that we could have direct network outlets if you want to wire your laptop in to get the best possible bang for your buck out of the gigabit Ethernet connection, then we can do that. So what we've done is we've purchased a Unify Dream Machine, which is the router and gateway type thing. It also has wireless access. We also purchased a Unify Switch with power over Ethernet injection and we've purchased a couple of access points. The beauty of the whole Unify infrastructure is that everything is done under one app and one user interface, and every piece of equipment is aware of every other piece of equipment, and it's all managed accordingly. We had a hybrid system. I started off some years ago with three airport extreme machines. These are the routers from Apple that they no longer produce, and I was pretty happy with them, actually. I had to swap out one of the airport extremes a few years ago when we switched to an internet provider here for our fiber that uses VLAN tagging. And unfortunately, the airport extreme never supported VLAN tagging. So I put in here an ASUS router and we were rocking with this ASUS router, which ran for quite some time. We were rocking the New Year's party on Mushroom FM at the end of 2018, going into 2019. And then all the guests left at about 2.30 or 3 a.m. We finally got to sleep. I woke up about 9, 9.30, no internet. Everything was down. And in the end, having tried switching it off and back on again and all those usual things, I tried to factory reset this router, which was a scary thing because I have lots of port forwarding rules set up. And still that didn't help. It was dead, Jim. Dead as a door now. And this was on New Year's Day when hardly anything is open in New Zealand. And the only thing I could do was find one store that was open and they had a couple of routers there. One was a D-Link, I think. And uh, I took that home and it was completely inaccessible to configure, took it back. They kind of made noises at me about not replacing it and everything. And I got very, very angry with them and said, you know, I've taken this straight back. It's inaccessible. It's unusable. You'd better swap this out, Boris. So finally they did, and I took home this Netgear gaming router, which actually has really been very stable on our fiber connection. But we've got this hybrid, a couple of airport extremes acting as access points upstairs, and it just has problems from time to time, particularly with more complex equipment like Sonos. It was always, even before that great New Year's Day internet meltdown, my ambition to get to Unify Gear. I know it's quite accessible. I mean, it's accessible on iOS and on the web, it's okay. You've just got to understand that a lot of the things that don't appear to be links actually are clickable. It's your classic kind of web 2.0 application. And so finally, I have fulfilled this ambition I've had for a while and have gone Ubiquity Unify right throughout the house. Setting it up was a bit challenging because there's some sort of limitation in the current version of the Unified Dream Machine that means that you have to connect the thing to an existing router 
that can give it a DHCP connection, set it up, and then give it the PPOE credentials, which is what we use for our fiber here. And then you're okay. You can connect it to the fiber. So that was a bit of a mission setting it up. It was just a bit unusual. But now that it's all going, it's a lovely setup and it's robust, it's rock solid, and it really is an ecosystem. It's kind of like being in the Apple ecosystem and the elegance of all of that. Because once you have a Unify network set up, which we did once we had the Dream Machine connected, you then add additional accessories. So when we added the access point, it simply detected that it was going into an existing Unify network. And in the Unify ecosystem, they use the term adoption. So it adopts a new accessory into the network. It then provisions it. The main Unify gateway, in my case, the Dream Machine, just gives it all the information that it's needed and it just works. It's really, really slick and it's a pleasure to work with. And I have an access point left over because the Wi-Fi is so good in these things that where we used to have to have two access points upstairs to get good coverage, we now only need the Unified Dream Machine down here in the studio plus one other access point. So we have one going spare. But I have to tell you a really amazing story. And that is that we got it all set up. I do find it's great. Heidi and I kind of bond over these things. We're both pretty geeky. And also Henry, Heidi's husband, that's good alliteration. Henry, Heidi's husband, he likes networking gear as well. So he was fantastic helping me shop for this stuff as well. We got it set up and um, it speeds me way up just to have a human screen reader at a time like that. And Heidi's fantastic. So I put her in an Uber, job well done. And literally at the point that she left and I got the little push notification that said Heidi is now heading away in an Uber, I then found that Mushroom FM was buffering and it was unlistenable. It sounded like listening to internet radio in the early 2000s on a bad day, you know, completely unlistenable. And I thought, what the heck is this? It was working perfectly just before. And so I thought, all right, well, maybe it's just under pressure because we've done so much to the router. Switch it off and back on again, dude. So I unplugged the Unify Dream Machine. I unplugged the switch that we've got and plugged it all back in. And still, Mushroom FM was buffering like a knit, like a knit. I was really panicking. I turned my Wi-Fi off and listened to Mushroom FM on the 4G internet connection on my phone rock solid, which reinforced for me the fact that something must be wrong with our new Unify system. So I retraced my steps and I thought, what have I recently done? I'd added a few port forwarding rules. And for those who love to geek out with their networks and create port forwarding rules, it's 100% accessible. I have never seen a user interface for a router that is so easy to add port forwarding rules. So I went in there deleted the most recent couple that I'd added. And then I remembered, okay, the last thing I did of significance, I switched our Synology network attached storage drive back on. I'll switch that off. I went through basically in reverse order because I've kind of got used to troubleshooting these things over the years. And it's almost like I have a human undo button. And I was going through undoing all of these things. Nothing was working. 
And I thought, I'm going to have to swap it all back out, aren't I? I'm going to have to put the Netgear router back in here. I'm going to have to put the Airport Extremes back up there because I've got Mosin at large. Listeners want to hear Mushroom FM. This is a really serious situation. Just before I started to push that major, major panic button, I had a brainwave. And I called up my spotty nephew on the other side of town, who is on the same ISP as me. And I said, spotty nephew, I said, why don't you try and listen to Mushroom FM on your soup drinker device? So he said, soup drinker, play Mushroom FM. And what do you know? It was buffering and carrying on and doing all those mean and nasty things. And I realized finally that actually it was an ISP issue with international bandwidth getting to certain places. I have never had a glitch like that with this ISP before. Internet tends to be very, very reliable here in New Zealand. What are the chances of spending all that time setting up a whole new network, every piece of networking equipment in your house swapped out, and then at the same time, just as you finish that project, the ISP having a major international meltdown? I mean, the chances of that are just so remote. And I was that close to taking it all out again. And of course, had I done that, I would have had exactly the same results when the process was over because it wasn't anything to do with the gear. <laughs> you know, oh man, that was close. And now, of course, it's all come right. And I'm really enjoying the gear. The, the, the fact that you can open the app, and I will demonstrate this perhaps at some point uh, when we don't have so much to talk about. But just getting the overview of your network, the devices that are connected, it's so easy to assign static IP addresses to any of those devices. It's really good. I don't claim to be some sort of super network expert. I've learned what I've had to do over the years to do some fairly complex things, but I don't know a lot. But one thing I do know is there's definitely a huge step up in quality and functionality between the consumer-grade Wi-Fi that you would normally pick up at your you know, best buyer equivalent and what we have now. I'm so pleased that we did this. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. We've had to wait a little longer than we've become used to, but it's nearly time for Apple to unveil most of the features that'll be in their major operating system releases for 2020. Of particular interest to me and others is iOS 14, given how the iPhone continues to take the blind community by storm. When I was operating Mosin Consulting, just ahead of Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference, I'd publish on my blog a list of things that I was hoping to see in that year's version of iOS. When I look back on those lists now, it's pleasing to see that many of my wishes have come true. And for all the frustrations that we sometimes feel about the bugs in voiceover, the fact that so many of those items are now implemented is a testimony to Apple's commitment to accessibility. Well, this year, I thought I would share my top 10 accessibility wish list for iOS 14 here on Mosin at Large. And of course, I'd be interested in your own hopes, both accessibility related and not for the operating system. Also, of course, whether any of these features that I'm suggesting grab you strongly in particular, either way. So the first one, improved Braille back translation. Apple is trying, it really is trying to get Braille right. But in the process, it's also trying the patience of competent Braille users who use contracted Braille. Apple has made some real strides in the last few years regarding the configurability of Braille, and it's fantastic. 
but at times Braille has been flaky, to the point of being unusable, and still isn't as smooth as inputting contracted Braille in JAWS, which for me is the gold standard. And I struggle to understand why Apple's very talented engineers seem to struggle so badly with Braille. At one stage, I wondered whether there were processor limitations, but back translation isn't that intense of a task, and in any case, now there's processor power to burn on iDevices. Apple has always cared about the education market, and for blind people, Braille means literacy. Getting Braille robust and right on day one of iOS 14's release is for me the single most important accessibility feature. The second one, vastly expanded activity functions. Activities were introduced in iOS 13. It was a great initiative. It's come from the Mac, and it's a way to configure VoiceOver's performance based on the app you're using or the kind of task that you're performing. I love this kind of configurability. So I'm hoping that Apple will build on the fantastic start they made by making activities do a lot more. I'd like gestures to be customizable for every app that you use, for the toggling of hints on an app-by-app basis, as well as a feature that would let you determine whether notifications interrupt the speech currently being heard. Let me talk about that some more and give you the context. Every book I read, I read exclusively on my iPhone. It's the only device I use for reading. Sometimes I'll use Voice Dream Reader if I can get the material in a form that Voice Dream Reader can work with, but usually I use the Kindle or Apple Books apps. Sometimes I don't want to put my phone in Do Not Disturb mode because I might be waiting for an important notification like a call or a text, but I don't want VoiceOver's reading of my book to be interrupted when notifications come in. You can certainly override Do Not Disturb for certain people, but that's not really a viable scenario in a business context. So the ability to stop notifications from interrupting speech on an app-by-app basis would be useful. Third on my wish list, a text-to-speech engine application programming interface. I believe this one might be coming, which is really exciting. I appreciate the sandbox approach that Apple has taken over the years, and I know it's a little bit controversial. Essentially what that means is that developers can't go rogue and access data that they shouldn't across the system. And when you delete an app, it doesn't leave messy data fragments all over the operating system affecting your system's performance. That means, though, the trade-off is that Apple needs to create application programming interfaces, or APIs for short, to let developer do things that have value across the entire operating system. It's annoying and wasteful that if you buy third-party voices, you can only do so with in-app purchases for a specific app, and you can only use those voices in the app you bought them for. This creates the undesirable situation of sometimes having to buy multiple copies of the same voice to use in different apps. Not only does that waste storage, but for blind people who often struggle to purchase an iPhone in the first place, it's completely unnecessary expense that could be avoided with the right API. All the voices that I've bought over the years, for example, for Voice Dream Reader, can't be used by any other app. A TTS API will fix that, and it'll give iOS users the same choice of voices that Android users have had for many years. Apple's done a good job with creating new APIs in recent years, safeguarding security while improving flexibility and openness. It's a sensible, albeit slightly bureaucratic approach, and hopefully we'll get the TTS API this year. Fourth, Siri. (laughs) I queued for six hours to get an iPhone 4S in 2011 
on the day it was released because I was so excited about Siri. It was innovative and fun for its time, but let's face it, Google Assistant has eaten Siri's lunch. I often find Siri sluggish and, frankly, obtuse. I want it to be responsive, and I want it more often to give straight answers to straight questions, something that Alexa does well, usually, as well. We are making progress, though. Siri shortcuts and opening up Siri through an API have really made a big difference. I like being able to tell Siri to play Mushroom FM, for example, with a simple command. And Siri shortcuts, when you learn the really basic rudimentary building blocks of shortcuts, are incredibly powerful. I think Siri shortcuts have been the best thing to happen to iOS for a very long time. And if you're interested in getting down there and having a play, you will be amazed what you can achieve with Siri shortcuts. But that said, I thought we'd be a little further along with this technology by now. When I got my iPhone 4S in 2011, so we're talking nine years ago now, I thought surely within the next decade, we must get to a point where we can say to Siri something like, find me the cheapest flight between 9am and midday and book that and I want to come home at a certain time and have Siri do all that heavy lifting for me. For people who struggle with this technology, for whom the touchscreen isn't intuitive, imagine the power that that would have if it could simplify online shopping with a conversational type of interface. Ordering flowers would be another fairly simple case study for something like this. You could simply say to Siri, I want to order a dozen red roses for my significant other. They would, of course, for sighted people, show pictures of the flower arrangements, but also describe them, tell you about the price, and ask which one you'd like to order. You could then just go ahead and do it. These are clearly very complex issues, but I feel like Siri's kind of stuck in a rut, and in fact, a lot of these virtual assistants are. But even by today's standards, Apple is just not there in terms of best in class anymore. Number five, read all in reverse. This is a bit of a weird one, I accept, but let me give you the use case. Twitterific is a wonderful iOS app, and in my view, far better than the official Twitter app. And I like to read my Twitter timeline in proper chronological order. Because reading from the most recent tweet backwards doesn't give you the sense of a story unfolding. And I do follow a lot of journalists on Twitter, both technology and otherwise. When I read my Twitter timeline this way, the only way I can do it is manually flicking up one tweet at a time because there's no way of reading continuously up the screen. This feature would make a real difference in apps that put the most recent item at the top of the screen. Sixth in my list, please fix the accessibility of notifications. When iOS 13 was released, notifications were badly broken for voiceover users. You couldn't scroll through them if you had a large number of them. Eventually, you would reach a point where flicking right wouldn't scroll any further. The best way to work around that bug was to clear each notification as you read it. And then, praise the Apple gods, it got fixed. Then, curse the Apple gods, they broke it again. And it remains broken as the show goes out. Now, I often wake up with dozens of notifications. Yes, don't judge. But I hope Apple fixes this once and for all. It's incredibly frustrating and impeding to the user experience. Seventh, fix email. Apple email for iOS is my favorite way to work with email, and I use it a lot. 
I love the unified inbox and the way that VoiceOver handles threads. It is such an efficient way to engage with long conversations by email in email lists, for example, and it saves me loads of time. But this has been spoiled by the fact that deleting an email often sends iOS into the focus twilight zone instead of elegantly placing focus on the next message in the folder. It is really sad and concerning that here we are in June and this high-impact bug remains. 8. Better handoff for MFI hearing aids. A little over a year ago, my number finally came up and I was able to upgrade to made-for-iPhone hearing aids. Overall, I've been pleasantly surprised by their good latency and how well they work. One thing that has been a casualty of them, though, is my iPad Pro, which I don't use as much as I used to. That's because handoff isn't working properly for me and based on my web searches for many others, both blind and sighted. The way it should work is that your iPhone, as your primary device, stops producing audio after a few seconds. And so the connection should be available to be picked up by your iPad if you switch your iPad on and then that starts generating audio. For me and many others, it simply doesn't work that way. Sometimes by toggling Bluetooth completely off on my iPhone, I can get the iPad Pro to pick up the MFI hearing aids. At other times, I need to reboot the hearing aids or the iPad or both. I understand that AirPods used to have this problem too, but Apple has sorted that now. MFI hearing aids need to be fixed as well. Number nine, vibration at startup. Now, this feature request is a little bit below the iOS level, I suspect, but it boggles my mind that for all the wonderful things Apple has done in the accessibility arena over the years, iPhones still won't do a basic thing like vibrate when you switch the thing on. As someone who once trained many people to use an iPhone, powering it on was even a frustration before they got to flicking and tapping. Come on, Apple, this one really is a no-brainer. And number 10, I want to reintroduce a concept that I came up with in iOS 12, and I call it defect equivalency criteria. I realize that's a bit wordy and your eyes may be glazing over, but let me explain, because I think this issue is absolutely critical. This last item is a request not for a new feature or even a change to an existing one, but rather relating to how accessibility bugs are handled and prioritized by Apple. As someone who has worked as a product manager in the IT industry, I'm well aware that all software has bugs. Every piece of software you are running has bugs, and you've got to stop developing at some point. There comes a time when you have to make a call that says, we need to release this thing now. We will absolutely keep working on the outstanding bugs, but we've got to get a product out there. The critical question then becomes, what software bugs are unacceptable in a public release that doesn't have a beta designation. I believe that in an accessibility context, Apple is failing to address this question appropriately or even humanely. It is absolutely the case that for many years now, Apple has had very significant high user impact accessibility bugs in every initial release of iOS. And that is not because Apple hasn't been told about the bugs I remember when Apple opened up their beta program to the public and you didn't have to have an Apple developer account to test. And I published a blog post at that stage to try and curb people's excitement. And I said, don't think 
that because more people are able to participate in the beta process that you're going to get less buggy releases because Apple had been told about these bugs before by people who did pay to have a developer account, often specifically so they could help the blind community and Apple by feeding back on accessibility bugs during the beta process. So they were told about the bugs. They just chose to release without fixing them. Someone somewhere is actually making a call, making a decision that it's okay to release iOS with the extremely serious and for some users crippling voiceover bugs that we have been seeing in the last few releases. We can and should complain about that. Our money is as good as anybody else's. But I also believe we should complain constructively. To that end, I'd like to offer a simple guideline that in my view should assist Apple to determine whether a bug is tolerable until it's time for another minor release. The key to this, in my view, is to translate the impact of a bug to an equivalent bug for the sighted. To illustrate what I'm saying, let me paint a hypothetical picture for you. Apple releases a major iOS update, and when it's installed, one of the most basic features of a phone, answering a call, is broken for many users. You turn on the TV news on iOS release night, and it is the lead story. Breathlessly, the newscasters begin with, Commerce was plunged into chaos today, as millions of people were unable to communicate with one another. There are interviews with tradespeople, salespeople, all of whom had their livelihoods disrupted. Apple's share price plummets. Tim Cook holds an emergency press conference to say he's sorry. It's not good enough. There will be an inquiry about how this slipped through and a patch will be released tomorrow after the team has worked nonstop to create a fix and test it. This exact scenario has already taken place. It took place when iOS 9 was released. The only difference is it just affected some blind people using VoiceOver. The problem answering cause was only present when VoiceOver was running. It was repeatedly reported to Apple by blind people during the beta test process, but it was released to the public nonetheless. Because it only affected blind people, it wasn't headline news. It didn't even make the news. There was no apology from Tim Cook. No journalist brought it to his attention. And the fix wasn't quick in coming. Meanwhile, blind professionals and people dependent on iPhone for safety and communications struggled. Would Apple dream of releasing a new version of iOS if a core function of the device was rendered useless to sighted people? Of course they wouldn't. And blind people are entitled to the same respect. An inferior user experience is not okay, and where they exist, consumer protection laws requiring that products must be fit for purpose are just as applicable to blind people. So, if criteria were set that made relevant comparisons with the impact on sighted people, I'd like to think that we would have progress. And let's face it, this is Apple, resources are not a problem. We must also hold Apple to the same standards that we do Vespero or NVDA or any dedicated screen reader company. That's because when Apple chose to put voiceover into their products, they chose to be a screen reader company. They must release a product that is fit for purpose. This approach requires qualified blind people who understand the needs of various parts of our community being key decision makers at Apple. Remember, nothing about us without us.
And I also think it requires a bit of relaxation on Apple's traditional we-know-what's-best-for-you culture. During Android beta test processes or talkback beta test processes, there are email lists that blind people can be a part of where they can have meaningful engagement with actual engineers who can make a difference, not just tech support people who pass the information on to engineers who can make a difference. Now, a little of that goes on with Apple, but they're extremely selective about who they talk to, and the process is neither public nor transparent. I applaud Apple for all that they've achieved, and sometimes I guess I get accused of being an Apple cheerleader, but I strongly reject the idea that somehow blind people should shut up and be grateful. I am profoundly grateful for all that Apple has done. I express gratitude for it every day, but that doesn't mean that we should somehow be docile about pointing out when something is not fit for purpose and when an approach can be better. As we become more dependent on these devices in both a professional and personal capacity, it's even more important that they work properly. So there's my top 10, and I'd be very interested in your own and any thoughts on these issues that I've raised. You're welcome to share your thoughts, jonathan at mushroomfm.com via email with an audio attachment or writing something down, and the listener line number in the United States is 864-60-MOSIN, that's 864-606-6736. This seems like an opportune time to mention our special podcast on WWDC. Because of COVID-19, WWDC is an online-only event this year, but we are expecting tradition to be followed and for Tim Cook to give the keynote presentation with other members of his team that tell us what is in iOS 14 and other goodies, probably at 10 a.m. on the 22nd, that is U.S. time. Right after the presentation concludes, I'll be getting together with a panel to record a special edition of Mosin at Large for you. That panel comprises Anna Dresner, who is a well-known technology expert and author, and Michael Fair, who's also a well-known technology expert and author. Heidi Taylor, the artist formerly known as Heidi Mosin, will be here, and she will be snapping pics of all the slides that go up on the screen that Apple don't talk about. What many people don't realize is that there are a lot of details that are contained in those slides that we miss out on. So Heidi is looking for information of particular interest. Also, if there are any physical bits of hardware that are displayed, she'll give you a good blindness-friendly description. So we're looking forward to getting that podcast out for you very quickly after the WWDC keynote. And uh, not surprisingly, some reaction already coming in on this. Gerardo is here. He's got a list and he says, one, voiceover include within its verbosity settings an option for reading digits as single or full numbers. Two, the ability, as mentioned in the rumors, to customize our home screen, especially adding widgets for actions like new tweets and others like Android. That's interesting that I have a shortcut and I just say new tweet and it opens the Twitter app in the compose screen and I just tweet. But yeah, I guess a widget would be nice, wouldn't it? Three, the ability also based on rumors I've heard in the past months for us to be able to use other synths aside from voiceovers defaults. It'd be neat, he says, if voices previously bought through voice stream reader could be used with voiceover. Four for WhatsApp and other messaging apps to be opened up so that we'd be able to use different vibration patterns as set in iOS contacts, useful, for instance, when while reading 
or watching Netflix or other content, I tend to put the phone on vibrate-only mode via the switch above the volume. It's how many times I haven't noticed a WhatsApp from family until it's too late to answer. Thus, if we could have different vibration patterns on WhatsApp or other messaging apps, it'd be a blessing. This would finally allow me to get the full potential of using our iPhones as a media consumption device too. Brian Gaff writes, well, I'm tempted to say a version that works with voiceover correctly from start might be the best bet. It may well be impossible in the hardware, but since we do expect bugs, some confirmation of a restart as a vibration or noise would be very welcome. I'd also like to see a simple way to vote up or down accessibility ratings of a running app that was reflected in an indication of accessibility in the App Store or indeed some tested with voiceover section. That would be really good, wouldn't it? Some sort of accessibility rating that was user-influenced. It might also be nice to have some customization of the behavior of the controls, i.e. stay where you last left it or go back to the start, as it can be a real pain when you need to get to where you were and it keeps on going back in nested items. He says it's about time they built in or had their own beginner's guide to how to use the phone with voiceover. As for enhancements, well, in the main, it's okay. Just don't improve stuff worse. (laughs) Anil in India says he would like to see, in iOS 14, support for all vocalizer voice packs. That way, he says, Apple will be able to support most of the languages that Google TTS supports. I mostly browse the internet on my Android phone because my regional language is supported by Google TTS. On Twitter, Tristan Clare says, I'd like to be able to navigate a document by heading without my phone saying, heading not found when I know full well there are heaps of headings left in the document. It really slows a lot of things down, doesn't it, Tristan? Something that I don't think Apple will ever do for security reasons, but uh, Tanya is on Twitter and she says, I'd like to see an accessibility feature where all updates are permanently turned off. That way, people with short-term memory loss and people with dementia can continue to use the software they're familiar with. Hey, Jonathan, it's Mike Fair. And uh, to start this off, yeah, what do I want from iOS 14 Basically, two things. I want the bugs fixed from iOS 13. I want everything to just work, especially the basics. Like if, if some new artificial intelligence driven thing doesn't quite work, uh, describing an image, I'm, I'm more okay with that than I am with the basics not working. Like when you make a call and then have yourself, you lose voiceover. I want, Nothing in iOS 14 that's that inexcusable. Uh, you know, the spell checking stuff should just work. Uh, all of that with, with no hassles and no regressions. I would love that. Second, I think is a long overdue tutorial for voiceover users to take them from the, the basic, the absolute scratch to a level of competence sufficient to at least use something like Apple Books and get your user guide for your product and be able to read that competently so you know what you have and what you can do. Third would be in the App Store. I'd like a system whereby you can limit your search 
to accessible apps, apps that are known to work with voiceover. And that that would be, uh, I think, a, a good thing, uh, again, mainly for beginners especially, but just good for everybody so that we can at least know what works and, you know, not not invest if we don't choose to be pioneering in that way into apps that might not be accessible. I'd like at least that to be an option, something that you can easily get around if you want to explore more broadly, but at, at least for to allow people to find out what is out there and accessible and will work for you if you want it. Uh, there should be a way to do that. So those are the basic three. And if anything, I think the, the tutorial for voiceover calls to me the most. I think that we're really in a space where there is a, a learning gap that beginners have to get around. And uh, it would it would do a lot of good, I think, for a, a tutorial to be out there on everyone's device that is just there for them when they have it. And they can easily sort of find out about it. Maybe there's a way of directing people to accessibility features that would be considered you know, non-obtrusive, non-sort of invasive, but there and, and will sort of tunnel people towards finding out about accessibility features more. I'd like to see something like that, perhaps during the setup process. Thanks, Mike. And there is a general feeling coming through in these comments of frustration regarding the bugs that persist in iOS. And look, Apple can't take blind people for granted anymore. Android is becoming increasingly more viable, particularly for speech users. So they've got to lift their game. Your comment about the accessibility of apps really resonates with me. I was looking for a nutrition tracker and wanted certain criteria to be true about the app in general, but I wasted a lot of time trying apps to see if they were accessible or not. And given that Apple reviews every app that is in the store before it's published, there should be some sort of process some automated process even, that just basically checks whether an app is fairly compliant with Apple's own accessibility guidelines. So I do think that that would be doable, and it would certainly make a big difference. Also on Twitter, Christopher Duffley is here. He says, for iOS 14, please, oh please, remove the sandbox and allow developers to modify the EQ for people's headphones or earbuds. We need this so bad unless you want to stick with the late-night setting, which is quite adequate for AirPods users. Yes, and it would open up a lot of possibilities for hearing aid applications, like Sonic Cloud. I don't think they'll ever get rid of the sandbox, but they could introduce some sort of audio API, and I'm sure that those people would appreciate that very much, those people involved in uh, hearing aid type or audio-related apps. And Kathy Blackburn has emailed in from Austin, Texas. She says, my biggest irritation with iOS 13.5 is still the repetitive notifications. I got a notification from settings that there's another little update tonight. If by chance that fixes notifications, then I'd just like for Apple to take their time with the next major update to be sure they don't break something else. No, sadly, not a thing yet, Kathy. Not a thing. And it frustrates the soup out of me as well. Joseph Hodge on Twitter. Hi, Joseph. Good to hear from you. He says, my most wished for feature is separating voiceover and media volume. Audio ducking works some, but to be truly productive for me, uh, I want the ability to set my media at a volume under my voiceover. Right. So 
I checked in with him to see whether if uh, the rotor action to adjust voiceover volume were enabled, whether that would make a difference. But what he's asking for is not just the ability to turn voiceover up and down, which you can at the moment, but the ability to turn media down, which would give you a lot of granularity over the balance between voiceover speech and what you're hearing. That would be great if they would put that on the rotor, for example. Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast. On the subject of whether you would take sight if it were offered to you, a reality check comes in from Colombia, and Luis Pena says in the discussion of the bionic eye, it's important to point out that a totally blind person since birth wouldn't be able to recover his sight. This is due to the fact that it's necessary to have a brain structure involved in your vision maturing fully for this process to take effect. The maturation process of these structures takes place during the first months of life. Incidentally, this is the reason why babies born with cataracts should undergo surgery no later than the eighth week after their birth so they can achieve full maturity of the visual cortex through sensory stimulation. This was the case with my daughter, Juliana, who was born with cataracts and underwent surgery when she was two months old. It seems to me that this bionic eye would be suitable for people who have lost their vision later in life, especially due to lesions in the retina, such as macular degeneration or retinitis pigmentosa. Finally, I would like to share with you an experience that I had 16 years ago. At that time, I was losing the little bit of sight that I had since I was a child. I had to undergo a very risky and complicated surgery that involved a cornea transplant. As a result of this surgery, I was able to recover some sight, not much, but sufficient to make an important impact on my life. This was a wonderful experience, and if I had the option to recover my sight fully, I would go for it. Tristan Clare is writing in from Australia with the subject line to see or not to see. Oh, how Shakespearean. And she says, like you, I was born blind, or in my case, with extremely low vision. My condition is called LCA. It's a genetic and it affects the retina. My brother has it too, and he has no sight. Both of us lead full lives where blindness hasn't got in the way of anything we want to do. Up until early this year, I would have said the same thing as you, that I wouldn't take the cure if it was offered to me on a plate with icing on top. Then, earlier this year, I read about a clinical trial for gene therapy to restore the sight of people with LCA. I'm aware that at this stage, it's purely speculative. It could come to nothing, be prohibitively expensive, or not happen in my lifetime. All of these things I am okay with. Like you, I'm not sitting in the dark with my hand out begging for full sight. I also hate that the narrative around such a cure portrays people like me doing exactly that. But it did get me thinking. I'm already a really visual person. Although my sight is so bad that I will never be able to drive or read standard print, I do use it on top of blindness skills. And I can't help thinking about what life would be like if it were enhanced, even a little bit. Now that the cure is a possibility, albeit a distant one, I can't just dismiss the idea and its positives out of hand. I wouldn't be interested in bionic eyes or anything surgical, though. 
The thought of any surgery happening in such a delicate area, so close to my brain, gives me the shivers. The other thing that would worry me about taking the cure would be if it wasn't permanent. I can cope with having very little sight because I haven't known anything different and I've found ways to live a great life. But having full or almost full sight for a time, then having to go through the grief of losing that sight is not something I want to go through ever. So if sight were offered to me, it would have to be non-invasive and permanent. Otherwise, I'm just not interested. Thanks for raising this topic, she says. It's a good one. And thank you for your very thoughtful comments as ever, Tristan. And in her contribution last week, Maria mentioned Mike May. Well, that's a good bit of alliteration there, isn't it? And here is Mike May chiming in on this. He says, I thought I would weigh in on this since I am one of a handful of people who had some vision restored after long-term blindness. I went blind at age three from a chemical explosion and had stem cell and cornea transplants in 2000. Our visual development is complete around the age of six, so when this bionic retina does work, it will not instantly restore sight, especially for those who are congenitally blind. In my situation, the new vision was quite overwhelming at first. As I learned to integrate it with my blindness skills, it became more useful. For example, I use a cane or dog for mobility and use the sight for, well, sightseeing, not for what is on the ground in front of me. Bonnie is absolutely correct. My optics are actually good enough for me to drive a car and to read a book. However, since my visual cortex was only half developed, I cannot do either of those major things with my eyes. My actual acuity is 20 over 1000, enough to see colours and motion. I have no depth perception or ability to see faces or details. The neuroscience around vision is fascinating. Oliver Sacks commented on my situation in a BBC documentary in 2001. A Nature article came out in 2003 explaining that it was not likely that I would become any better at seeing as an adult. A best-selling book about my life and visual restoration, Crashing Through, came out in 2007. I had no interest in getting my sight back. I did it because I was curious to pioneer this very new medical technology. I wouldn't be Mike May if I didn't try it. Thanks, Mike. And Christopher Wright writes, yes, it's right that Christopher Wright is writing, right? And he writes, in regards to the question of restoring vision, my answer is no. I've been blind since birth and have ROP. While it would be nice to have vision for information purposes, that's all I care about. Even if it were possible to restore vision, my brain would most likely not be able to handle the input. I have no concept of colour, facial expressions, etc. I used to wish I had vision like everyone else. However, the longer I live, the more I've come to view blindness as a gift. It gives me a different perspective on the world. I miss out on so many superficial details such as fashion that really aren't important in the grand scheme of things. I like to say function over appearance and blindness really makes this statement true. I'm in the process of reading the WWW trilogy for the second time and have finished the first two books. Thank you for introducing me to this wonderful series. I definitely believe it has opened my mind to many interesting ideas particularly consciousness. 
It gives me a lot to think about when it comes to the ultimate question everyone has been trying to answer. I find the idea of WebMind extremely fascinating and stopped paying attention to the blindness altogether when he was introduced. However, having a new perspective on these books after not reading them for four years makes me wonder about the portrayal of blindness. While the descriptions are generally accurate, I'm slightly disturbed by Caitlin's strong desire to receive vision, even after being totally blind since birth. I obviously don't share this enthusiasm. I wonder what your thoughts are on this. I suspect some of Sawyer's views are a little biased since he has vision. I plan on talking to him about the series after I finish Wonder. Thanks very much, Christopher. A couple of points I want to pick up on there. First, I am quite interested in fashion and I do care about appearance and what people look like and things like that. So I guess it does depend. Somebody once suggested to me that being blind was wonderful. And this was a sighted person who said this, by the way, because how could a blind person be racist when you can't see someone's skin color? Gosh, I wish that were true. I've met some pretty racist blind people in my time. Similarly, I think a lot of blind people do care not just about their own personal appearance and whether they look fashionable or not, but whether other people are as well. I kind of, you know, I think it's it's okay to have an interest in fashion, but other people do share your view that somehow blindness makes us exempt from superficiality. I'm not so sure I agree, but it would be interesting to know what others think about that. Now, regarding the Sawyer book, I think that Caitlin is pretty realistic. I can imagine as a teenager, you know, let's not forget what it's like to be a teenager. For those who are not, it can be pretty difficult. You are watching your friends drive away in vehicles. Some are dating and depending on your circumstances and how well you're accepted in your community and your degree of social adjustments, it could be difficult for you to do that. So there are various things that happen when you're a teenager. Perhaps you're being excluded for various reasons that really sometimes make you think at a time when you don't want to be different, you want to be in with a crowd, that being blind is just such a piece of soup sometimes. So I can certainly imagine that Caitlin might want to go for the, what do they call it, the iPod that would give her some vision. And Carol Ashland has emailed in on the subject. Nice to hear from you, Carol. She says, I'm 72 years old and have been blind all my life due to retrolental fibroplasia now called, boringly, written off a thee of prematurity. If I was offered the chance to receive sight, I would jump at it. I am sick and tired of finding things to be inaccessible. If such a thing actually became possible, governments would have to understand that people who received it would not suddenly become totally functionally sighted people. I love your podcast. It's one of the best out there. Thank you so much, Carol. I do appreciate that. And short and sweet from Dawn Davis in Sydney, and she says that she's been blind since birth, and if she got her sight back, she would be terrified. Hi, Jonathan, it's Mae Thompson here. Yes, I would like to get my sight back, like a few people have said, just to see what it's like. But whether I could cope with it or not, I don't know, because I think it would be a very, very steep learning curve. And regarding sight... I was just thinking the other day that I do this exercise class with a lady who has become a friend. She used to help me in the swimming pool and um, she does this exercise class individually for me over Zoom because a lot of the 
videos that you get on YouTube, like we've talked about before, they're so visual, they're not easy to follow. One day when we, when I was with her, she said, give me a high five. And I said, what? I'd heard of a high five, but I didn't know how to do it. And I said, how do you do it? What's a high five? So she showed me how to do it. And I often wonder if blind people would know if someone said, give me a high five, if they would know what to do. And same with waving. Have you ever, you know, if someone says, wave to them, you know, they're waving to you. I always feel awkward. I always feel a bit stupid, like waving. And I think, well, do you do it this way? How do you do it? You know, I wonder how, if you've ever had somebody saying wave, just give them a wave. It just feels alien to me somehow. What do other people think? It just makes me feel awkward. Yes, there are some things that we just have to be taught, aren't there? And waving is certainly one. I remember being taught as a kid how to wave. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. Jonathan, this is Roy in Little Rock. I was intrigued by your discussion last week pertaining to the bionic eye and whether I would choose to have surgery if it were available. And my immediate reaction was, sure, I would. But then I listened to the other points of view on the show, and I listened to you and Bonnie, and I hearkened back to an earlier time in my life, and it was when I was in college, and I was interested in this young lady, and so my roommate had a car, and I asked him, would he consider my going on a double date with he and his girlfriend? And uh, he said, well, sure, if, if I wanted to do that. He said, who was the girl? And I won't use any names here, but I said, well, Judy Smith. And he said, Judy Smith, is that the best you can do? He said, I don't know if I'd want her in my car or not. And I said, well, what's wrong with it? He said, have you looked at her? And I said, yes, but you know, Jonathan, as I thought about it, I really hadn't looked at her at all because I sat behind her in class and I'd talked to her, but I had never really looked at her. So in the days to come, I had gotten, I went to her and, and engaged her in conversation and looked her over and, and I realized that she had brown eyes and that her figure was not that much. And then I asked myself, does that really matter to you? you know, do you care? And I really didn't. I, I didn't care at all. And so uh, it occurred to me that beauty was a concept that I didn't have, that I didn't know if a girl was pretty or not or attractive, and I really didn't care. And so I didn't think much more about it until later on I uh, had a class with a young lady who was a beauty contest winner. She was Miss Sweet Potato or something. I don't know, but they said she was very attractive. And so I looked this girl over one time to see, and, you know, uh, Jonathan, it didn't mean anything to me at all. So I say all this to say that I don't know that if I had a bionic eye, that it would make any difference as far as certain things were concerned, because I think I have concepts, and I don't think there's any way to to change my concept, even you know, regardless of how well I could see. Now, I think it might help me hit a baseball, because I understand baseball. I've tried to hit a baseball before, but as far as knowing what people look like, 
I don't know if it would make any difference or not. Hey, Jonathan, it's Marc Bayarjan in Montreal, Quebec. In answer to your question, I was born in 1956, premature retinopathy. So I've had no sight, no light perception since birth. My short answer to your question is absolutely I would go for it. Not because I feel that as a blind person I'm limited, but because as a sighted person I would be able to do things in a similar way to what my sighted wife who is in a motorized wheelchair can do. I would love to be able to look at a computer screen and not have to use a screen reader or think about how to manipulate either the Mac or on the Windows side with Bootcamp and using JAWS or using VoiceOver. I'd love to be able to walk into a room, turn on the computer, turn on the TV and see what the hell is going on just like Sandy does. I'd like to be able to take a TV dinner out of the fridge and not have to rely on somebody to call Ira for the five-minute freebie or to call Sandy on FaceTime to ask her. There's so many things I'd like to do. First and foremost, I'd love to be able to drive. I'd love to be able to have that freedom and not have to rely on transport adapté. And to get through the rehab of the whole thing, I'd have her to support me and other ways and means to support me. And I'm not on social assistance because of my income, because of my public service career. I'm not eligible for social assistance. So that's not something I have to worry about getting it or not. I would just open so many doors and make life so much easier. And the fact that I would be able to drive would be absolutely amazing. On another quick subject, I'm going to change to Zoom. If I'm in Zoom on the Mac and I mute my audio, when I hit the space bar to unmute myself temporarily, voiceover starts yapping. So it defeats my purpose of unmuting myself and wanting to talk because other people in the meeting are hearing voiceover yap. I have to consistently remember to go to the trackpad and do the three-finger double tap to mute my speech. Is there a way of getting around that in the sense of making voiceover work in such a way that when you press the spacebar temporarily to unmute yourself, that voiceover won't yap and interrupt what you're intending to try to do? My second question relates to when you're in a meeting in Zoom, is there a quick keystroke that you can use with the Mac to determine who is speaking at the time they're speaking rather than trying to arrow VO right, etc., to find that particular focus area, which is often hard to get into because it takes arrowing left and right sometimes two or three times in that area before it actually tells you and then 30 seconds later, voiceover loses focus. Good to hear from you, Mark. I think for a voiceover user, probably using the shortcut key to mute and unmute your audio may just be easier. So in the case of the Mac, that's Command-Shift-A. The one thing I would observe is that obviously if you hear voiceover yammering away when you're holding down the spacebar to 
temporary already unmute yourself, that could be annoying for you. If other people are hearing voiceover, that sounds to me like you are using the built-in mic on your computer with the speakers on your computer. If it's possible, I'd strongly encourage anyone on any video conferencing platform not to do that. It is really good etiquette for these things to use a decent headset because echo cancellation can sometimes go wrong. I cannot tell you how many Zoom meetings I've been on in the last few months that have been derailed because something has messed with the echo cancellation. There has to be a special algorithm in place that tries to isolate the sound of somebody coming back through the speakers from your microphone. And that sometimes does not work in any of these platforms. So the best thing you can do, and you'll get a lot less room ambience, which helps people like me who have a hearing impairment, get yourself a decent microphone headset and wear that. The world will thank you for it. I simply don't know the answer to your second question about Mac. Um, One of the things that I really enjoy about JAWS, of course, is how configurable everything is. And Harchin Consultancy has done an excellent job with their Zoom scripts. You might be able to use a hotspot area to define that part of the screen with VoiceOver on Mac that always sees the speaker's name and assign that hotspot to a key. That might be doable, but I have no Mac to test that on, so maybe others can comment. On the subject of exercise equipment, Tom Bergender says, I have a Concept2 rowing machine. Many health clubs with rowing machines use this brand. It has a big flywheel on the front. A damper on the right side adjusts the tension. The operator holds on to a wide handle, which is connected to a chain. I was first introduced to rowing machines in 1985. At that time, there were two shock absorber handles, one on each side. Concept 2 revolutionized the equipment. I also have a Nordic track. The machine simulates cross-country skiing. It was originally manufactured in Chaska, Minnesota. The original company is part of a larger concern that manufactures a wide variety of exercise equipment. They still keep a version of the Nordic track in their product line. The motion is easy on the joints. Easy on the joints, man. Mosin at Large Podcast. Hi, Jonathan. Mike May from Northern California, living in Wichita, Kansas. A couple things from episode 38. Vince was talking about trying to get into a friend's apartment and remembering the door codes. One of the ways to do that is to use a GPS that allows you to record a user point of interest. That way the information is geographically contextual. The CNI GPS does that, BlindSquare does that, and probably some of the others do as well. That way, next time you go to the apartment, those notes that can be either in text or in a voice clip will be automatically triggered when you're near the location. You mentioned pranks. When I was at the CNI in the early 80s, back when we had roommates, we put together a prank against one of the female trainers who we rather liked. In those rooms, there's a toiletry compartment, a metal shelf that one could unscrew from the wall, which we did when she was on her day off. And we put a talking time clock inside the wall and then screwed the metal panel back over it. It was set for 3 a.m. It took her two or three days before she started asking around who were the devils that were waking her up in the middle of the night. 
Hi, Jonathan. This is Claudia from Tampa, Florida. I just wanted to give a few tips on using Google Docs. I found the mobile version of the apps to be accessible. I've used it on both iOS and Android, and I found them both to be a lot more accessible than using it on the computer. And I also wanted to point out that it's very good to try to ask for permission to collaborate throughout the whole document, such as getting editing, comments, and everything, all the permissions that you can get, because that actually helps to make the experience a lot more accessible. I hope everyone is doing well during the COVID-19 crisis, and everyone stay safe. Thank you. Thanks for the tip, Claudia. When I was at Ira, we used Google Docs, and there were some issues with the mobile app at that time, some weird business with editing. And I remember filing a bug report, and I think they eventually addressed it. It seemed to me that then, and we are talking a year and a half ago now, I guess, the mobile app was almost there. And based on your description, it sounds like it's continued to progress and come a long way. For JAWS users, one of the things I found helped very much with Google Docs on Windows was to turn on Braille mode in accessibility settings. Even if you are not a Braille user, that seemed to really improve the experience. Also, in recent times, JAWS has introduced some of the navigation quick keys that users of Word have become used to. And I found those easier just because they're so ingrained in my brain, muscle memory and all of that, than trying to memorize all of the multi-layer keystrokes that do similar things in Google Docs, although there are more of them. But it would be great to hear more experiences of Google Docs. I'm glad yours has been favorable on the mobile apps and also to find how people are going with collaborating with others on Google Docs. I think the collaboration features of all of these tools are one of the best things about them, whether it be Microsoft Office or the G Suite, because in the past, people would go up front and they'd write on a whiteboard and you'd have to try and keep up with what people were writing and blacking out and replacing And I just love being in a room with a bunch of people with devices open, collaborating in real time on a document. It is really empowering. Christian Bertling writes, Hey, Jonathan, I was wondering if you ever tried Pocket Casts. I know that you are a huge fan of Castro. I was just wondering what you thought of Pocket Casts. Good to hear from you, Christian. I was actually going to respond with a bit of a demo of some of the accessibility challenges in Pocket Casts, for iOS at least, like the fact that when you flick through the list of your podcast, you actually get two occurrences of every podcast that you subscribe to, and there are some unlabeled buttons. But to my delight, when I went to put this brief demo together, I found that a lot of the accessibility improvements in Pocket Casts for iOS have been addressed. So I haven't had a good play for a while, and I do really like the Castro Q concept, which just to me makes so much sense and has caused me to listen to a lot more podcasts. However, I think... Pocket Casts is a real contender, particularly for those who listen to podcasts on multiple devices and, most significantly, multiple platforms. There is a Pocket Casts website. There's also an iOS app. There's an Android app. I'm not sure if they're on Apple TV or not, but very significantly for many of Mosin at Large's listeners, they are on Sonos. So you can add the Pocket Casts service. It's all cloud-synced and pick up from where you left off 
through Sonos. Now, I mean, that may or may not be a big deal. When I want to listen to podcasts on one of the Sonos devices here, I just airplay it from Castro, and we have an increasing number of Sonos devices that support airplay. So that's what we do. But if you have older Sonos devices or you just like the idea of saving some battery and playing things directly from your Sonos, yes, Pocket Casts has been around a long time. They seem to have had an injection of enthusiasm and money Thanks to a recent acquisition, I think, are they owned by NPR or some sort of public radio conglomerate in the US? I think that is true. But they do seem to be actively under development and adding a wide variety of features. And certainly the accessibility has improved a lot since I last looked at Pocket Cast for iOS. Hey, Jonathan, this is Adi all the way. As usual, I have three questions. Uh, okay, one, the Reddit app or the Reddit app. Uh, I understand there was a student who was developing it and trying to make an accessible app on the iPhone. And this work is in process for quite some time. I am on iOS 13 with the latest build. However, I am not a beta tester. So I just download apps from the Apple App Store. So currently, am I in a position to use this app without being a tester? And two, is there a timeline when this app is going to be rolled out? Because I don't have any other uh, way around to use Reddit currently. All right, let me have a crack at the first question and then we can play the second question. Yes, you can try this app. It is not in the App Store yet. The name of the app is Dystopia, spelt D-Y-S-T-O-P-I-A, Dystopia. And it's being put together by a young guy, I think he's a college student, who was concerned about the accessibility state of apps for Reddit. It's available as a public test flight build. So even if you're not running a beta test build of iOS itself, you can still volunteer to beta test apps. Dystopia has been in beta for so long that it's incredibly stable. And a lot of people who are part of the beta group say to the guy, you know, when are you just going to release it, dude? Get over with it. Release this thing. And I'm not sure what the holdup is, but improvements do continue to be made. It is in really good shape. I will try and find the test flight link, which is a public link for Dystopia, and put it in the show notes for those who would like to subscribe to Reddit. Like any community, Reddit's got its dark corners and it can be horrible sometimes, but I find I'm getting a lot of useful info from there, particularly things like Sonos users and other podcasters and that kind of stuff. So it is worth being on, I think. And all you need is the Test Flight app, which is a free Apple app that allows you to get push notifications when a developer updates a test build. You can also provide feedback to the app developer. And because of Apple's sandboxed approach. Now, that said, you could try a couple of other apps that I have found fairly reasonable. I think Dystopia... While it doesn't have every feature that the other two I'm going to mention have, it is, I think, on balance, the most accessible. But these other two apps are pretty good in terms of their accessibility. One is called Apollo, and the developer has wonderful release notes. This is yeah, I've been talking in the last couple of weeks about apps that just don't tell you what they've fixed in their uh, app notes when they release a new build. The Apollo release notes are wonderfully detailed. And he has put quite a bit of effort into voiceover support. So you can check out Apollo for Reddit in the App Store. There's also another one. It doesn't appear to be as updated quite as frequently, but it's still pretty accessible. And that is called Bacon Reader, which I'm pretty sure is all one word. So check out any three of those apps. But certainly 
the one that has been developed specifically with blind people in mind, and it has lots of actions and voiceover features and customization for uh, verbosity, that one is Dystopia, and it's available as a test flight build for now. Second question, I, in case you recollect, I have recently, a few months back, and during the lockdown, started using my Apple Magic Bluetooth keyboard. I am a primarily a Windows user. I have never used Mac, and I'm really loving this. However, most of these products are not available in my country, just as a backup. For my professional use, I need to do typing maybe maybe 10 to 15 minutes a day on my iOS device. Okay, and I am unable to use voice dictation. And carrying my magic keyboard to office does not seem a very wise idea, especially when I have only one piece. Uh, so would you or any of your listeners recommend a specific model for a mini Bluetooth keyboard which allows you to type to some extent. I'm not ex- expecting something really as good as the Magic Keyboard or the Logitech K811, but good enough to type. Foldable or, uh, you know, uh, more portable, which can come in your pocket if you fold it, something on those lines. The Rivo 2 does not meet my requirement. Uh, it is too small like a credit card, and I don't think typing will be easy. This is my view. And three, how does one become a better typist in terms of you know creating professional documents on an ios device using a bluetooth keyboard i understand practice but practice without direction like i am much better than what i was few months back but i've reached a stage where uh, some guidance would be appreciated in terms of is there some reference guide some booklet some tutorial you know where you can create a word uh, i mean a document with the headings uh, when you want to utilize something bold something uh, some text you can do it uh, using your bluetooth keyboard on ios uh, your punctuations and you're able to understand what you've done it would be great to hear some recommendations of this i did have a foldable bluetooth keyboard and it folded in sort of three equal parts and it had a hinge and i didn't really like the feel of it and i stopped using it pretty quickly because it was a nice concept but i just didn't like typing on it at speed and i am a really fast typist it was called the iClever. That's what it was called. The iClever Bluetooth foldable keyboard. And I believe it was cross-platform. So there was a way of telling it whether you were using a Windows machine or an Android device or an iDevice. And it would configure its keyboard accordingly. And this was some time ago now, some years ago. So there will no doubt be a new generation, probably several new generation Uh, versions after the one that I had. And interestingly, when I Googled and I got a squillion results back on foldable keyboards, including Anchor and Microsoft, so there are some big players in this game now, I did see that the iClever was recommended by one site I read as the number one Bluetooth folding keyboard. So there are a lot of people who like it, and it may be quite different from the version that I've seen. What I've done is because I'm so enjoying typing on the Apple Magic keyboard and I was forgetting to take it to work, (laughs) I have one in my office now and one at home and that way it's just there and I find that that has really worked very well for me. Apple has pretty superficial guidance on how to use voiceover in the iPhone manual itself But if you look on Apple's knowledge base, you will find some articles about working with a keyboard, both in terms of using it with voiceover and general keyboard commands that sighted people use as well. As a rule of thumb, for things like bolding and italicizing, that sort of thing, you can often substitute the control key that you would use in Windows with the command key. So you know, for example, that you can use control I to italicize, control B to bold on Windows, 
control N to start a new document. All of those things are migrated in Apple land to the command key, the one to the left of the spacebar. And sometimes these commands will vary from application to application. So commands that might work for creating a heading in Ulysses will be different from commands that might work, say, in Apple Notes. Also with Ulysses and many other similar apps, they're using Markdown. And you can teach yourself how to use Markdown to create headings, bold, italicize, all with Markdown language that applies not only across apps, but across operating systems. If you can master the basics of Markdown, then you have a wide range of editors that you can work with on a wide range of platforms. There's also Michael Fair's recent free book that we talked about on Mosin at Large a few weeks ago, and I can put a link to that in the show notes as well. So there are plenty of resources. I would really encourage you and others to use good search terms. If you search on Google for iOS, voiceover, keyboard commands, all sorts of useful resources will come up. And in terms of iOS keyboard commands, now that they're all programmable, one way that you can learn what keyboard commands are assigned to functions is to go into voiceover settings, choose commands, and then you'll be able to drill down into the keyboard commands and have a look at every keyboard command that is assigned to voiceover. And you can change them, but they're often just a useful resource to review. And finally, another thing that you can do is you can press the VO key with K. So that's either control and option together or the caps lock key. Hold either down and then press K and you will get into keyboard help mode. Then you can press any key or combination of keys and find out what they do. You can press the escape key to exit that. Hello, it's Robin from Warwick in England here. Brilliant shows. Do keep up the good hard work on everything that you produce. I just wanted to give my two penneth worth on a couple of topics that have been covered in recent episodes. First of all, the case for wireless charging. Now, this is a use case if you are predominantly at a desk all day or in one position. If you get an easel type stand, I've got the RAV power, R-A-V power, all one word, cost about £16, probably similar in dollars, US anyway. And because you're at your desk, you just pop it on there. It's so easy because it's a kind of an easel at an angle. You can't get it wrong. And it just makes the reassuring little noise and it's charging up. And every time you want to use it, you just take it off and do what you want to do. Because let's face it, you've got to put your phone down somewhere when you're not using it. So why not put it on something that will keep it constantly topped up? I appreciate that that might not be the best for the battery to always keep it kind of on this thing all day but I literally never have to worry about the phone being out of charge. It has obviously more than enough to last me overnight, and the next day I do the same thing again. So it's like it's never being charged up, or I don't even have to think about it. So that's one thing. The next is about mixers. We've been talking a lot about those recently, and I just wanted to share my setup because I'm really pleased with it, and I get the best of both worlds with regards Mac OS and Windows 2. So I'm on a Mac Mini here. And it's got a VM, VMware Fusion. It's nice and accessible within which I'm running Windows 10, latest version. And I've got a mixing desk, which is an Allen & Heath Z10. And it has a sea of faders, of knobs and nice buttons at the bottom, which you can include or exclude different sources. And it's hugely powerful, really, really good. But 
the system that I've got is uh, voiceover is coming out of the headphones jack from the Mac Mini. And that's because the Allen & Heath is a USB in and out. So that leaves the headphone jack free. So if I do VOM. Menu bar, Apple. QuickTime player. File. Edit. View. I'm hearing QuickTime player, which is definitely a Mac app. And I'm just making my way across the menu bar. I'm using Ava. Love Ava. Now I have allowed voiceover to come through to the recording. I would usually never do that, but I've turned that knob on for you or depressed that button for you. And to show you that I've got a VM, if I do command tab, VMware Fusion, VMware Fusion. Here we are in VMware Fusion. If I do say line with JAWS, unread guide dogs, could you help improve guide dog services? Friday zero five. If I do an insert T, Outlook dash inbox. So this is Outlook. So this is definitely on the Windows side. I like to have, uh, Jaws's voice also being Ava and at exactly the same speed, but that comes through a different channel. I've got that going through a secondary sound card, which is a £10, very cheap USB sound card that I pop in the back of the Mac and that output goes into another channel on the mixer. Why would I want to do that? Well, sometimes I'll want to record a demo of Jaws working or a voiceover working and I don't want the other one to suddenly pipe up and be involved in the recording, but just to show you that it is on a different channel. So if I turn the jaws right down and do it again, Unread. Guide dogs. Could you, help them? you can just about hear that. But if I do a keystroke for voiceover, VMware Fusion, eight running applications, current activity voiceover settings. You see that's still loud. So I'll put that back up again. I usually have them at the same volume. Cool. Now you can also have two other things going in here. I've got my echo going in here. Alexa, what time is it? It's 2.54pm. That's going in the mixer. And also the main sound output from the computer. That's going in via the USB of the mixer. And that's in channel 6. So let's switch to... Here's VLC Media Player if I hit spacebar. Here's some nice calming music. Turn it up. Now I could have this going in the background into my ears because my headphones are plugged into the mixing desk. But as long as I don't pass it through to the output of the mixing desk, nobody else on a video call or a Skype call, for example, would be able to hear it. Let's turn that back down again. And the volume of that on channel 6 isn't affected by voiceover. VMware Fusion, seven running applications, current activity. Or JAWS. They're still at the same volume as ever. Let's stop that. And finally, you can connect to your phone by saying, Alexa, connect to my phone. Searching. Now connected to Robin's iPhone. Let's play the media on my phone. But is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN. 864-60. There you go. And if I flick to the left or right, that's coming through the phone. And if I went to audio destination, then I could choose to have voiceover going through the echo as well. That's a recent property of AirPlay where you can separate out voiceover from the media. And if you have problems and voiceover isn't staying on your phone or going to the echo as desired, then just unload voiceover and reload it. And by the way, if you want to have wired earbuds, you can plug those into your phone before connecting to the echo 
and then it will have voiceover going into your ears instead of out loud. But you have to do it in that order. You do indeed. Thank you very much, Robin. I appreciate that because you really gave a good demonstration of the benefits of having a mixer. The one thing that I do differently, I have a cable going from my mixer to my iPhone. I don't have to put it through the soup drinker. I just find that preferable. Uh, Apart from anything else, the latency is much better. So it's good for demos in that regard. But a lot of people do this. They take their kind of dodgy sound card that comes built into their PC, be it Windows or Mac, although actually the the sound in Mac is less dodgy built in than usually the built-in stuff is on Windows, and use that for speech and then get dedicated audio interfaces for the more professional stuff. I'm not using a Mac at the moment, but I do have JAWS that I can just fade up here. PC. And there is Jaws. See, I'm not using Ava. You seem to be obsessed with Ava, Robin. Bit concerned about you. Obsessed with Ava. So I'm just using my eloquence with Jaws and I can fade that up. I also have my soup drinker on another couple of channels and I have the iPhone on more channels. And then I have my complete audio six, which gives me a couple of outputs from the computer of high quality. And then the Allen and Heath mixer itself has a USB port. This is predominantly an analog mixer, but you do have one USB port. So it is great. It is so cool. And then we have a couple of mics in here, a couple of high PR40s. So the mixes are great, aren't they? They are very versatile. So thank you for taking us through that and the way that you have it set up. And the fact that you have your VM and the Mac coming through different sound cards is quite genius. That is a very good idea. Regarding the wireless charging, absolutely right. Here in the studio slash office, and I'm increasingly working from home these days, which I love, I just have a wireless charger here. At work in my office where I don't have access to my lovely precisely mounted webcam like I do at home, I have a dock that the iPhone sits in to give me constant charge because that way I can look at the camera, I know I'm at the right height and participate in video conferencing, which I do exclusively from my iPhone when I'm at the office at work. But yes, at home, I just have a wireless charger sitting here and the phone's always on it and I can just sort of lean to the right and look at the phone and it unlocks And I know that I've got enough juice should anything weird happen, which it did earlier in the week. I was just lurking about minding my own business, as you do. And the power went off for about an hour and a quarter. And you sort of think when things like that happen, how much juice do I have? I mean, these iPhones go on and on and on now. You can get incredible battery life out of them. But Wellington is quake prone. Things can happen. And it's nice to know you're fully juiced up should the need arise. So great message. Thank you. It is time for another exciting, informative, inspiring installment of Tiffany, 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 Tiffany Report. And she says a few times now you have mentioned the use of Teams. She says that their IT department is really discouraging of using Zoom because of security. And now they are suggesting using GoToMeeting. She says, though they are typically against updating of anything logical, usually at least three to five years behind the rest of the world. For example, all our internal applications not only are set to use IE, that's Internet Explorer by default, but they only work in Internet Explorer. I have admin rights to download and install other browsers and set them as default, but the GPO changes it back as soon as I connect to the network. Yes, the public issues with Zoom are not good, 
but it's the friendliest platform out there, not just for JAWS users. I have found Keystrokes online to barely manage the use of their preferred go-to meeting, but I am by far struggling to do much beyond the basic video and microphone functions. Forget chat. They are starting to open to the idea of using Teams. But what resources do you feel are the best for my learning Teams? I don't know that many JAWS users who are stating comfortability with it. Is this like the other parts of 365 where you should, in theory, be able to download locally, provided OIT permit it, and also use via a web interface? Is one interface more preferred for JAWS users? I do know quite a few JAWS users who are using Teams, Tiffany, because it is part of Office 365. Well, now they call it Microsoft 365. So many workplaces are just rolling it out. And by and large, I really quite like Teams. The user experience is very similar, whether you use the browser-based application, the the Web 2.0 application on the web, or whether you use their dedicated client. I would tend to use the latter, their dedicated client The keyboard shortcuts are very good, and there's plenty of documentation out there about what those keyboard shortcuts are, and there are some Microsoft videos on using Teams with a screen reader. Some time ago, maybe, I don't know, five or six months, I'm guessing, they did a webinar on using Teams with a screen reader, so that's a resource that you can draw from, and also Vespero did a webinar recently on the basics of using Teams with a screen reader, and actually, I think I did see a tweet from Microsoft recently that indicated that Kelly Ford was going to be doing another webinar on using Teams with a screen reader. And of course, Kelly is a power user. He's a blind guy himself, a JAWS user and users of other technologies as well. So he should be able to provide some great information there. And if that hasn't just happened, it's quite imminent, I think. Microsoft tweeted about that in their Microsoft accessibility account. I have to say, I think their desktop user interface for Teams is sort of quirky. I don't find it particularly intuitive. It is one of those new applications where there's no menu bar, but it's definitely usable. And the iPhone app is great from an accessibility perspective. Some blind people have said to me they prefer using the iPhone version of Teams than anything else. Audio quality of Teams is really good. I actually prefer it to Zoom. It's crisper. It sounds really nice. And for hearing impaired people, that is significant. At the moment, though, they do not seem to be sending events to a screen reader that tell you who have joined the conversation. And of course, with Zoom, you do get that. What I am hearing at the moment with Teams is when somebody joins, it says two participants have joined the conversation, which is not only unhelpful, but it's also inaccurate because that comes across when only one person joins the conversation. But They are rolling out updates very regularly to Teams, and you are going to see Teams much more in regular life now that Microsoft has rebranded Office 365 to Microsoft 365. You are going to see them making a play for the use of Teams in day-to-day consumer activities. And if you're using Teams in your workplace and you would like to chime in on how it's working for you, please do get in touch. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com with the email or 864-60-MOSIN in the United States, 864-606-6736. It's been a while, by the way, since I used GoToMeeting, but it was horrible then. And from what I've heard in recent times, it is horrible now. It is interesting 
that any government agency is using GoToMeeting, frankly, because I would have thought that their accessibility just isn't up to it. We do have, unless we get another email, of course, we do have one more installment. Looking forward to that next week of the Tiffany, 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 Tiffany Report. Yes, it's hard to believe, but we are in store for another Bonnie Bulletin. Welcome. Good, good morning. What a build-up. Yeah. <laughs> How's it all going? Good. I was just sitting here in my studio, minding my own business, doing the Mosin at large. Next thing I know, whoosh, I hear myself being blasted so loud that it was almost going to decimate the ceiling. What were you bad. doing up there? I mean, I, I guess that shows us how loud the Sonos it can go. It was really loud. It I, was so well, loud. I, well, I mean, I'm down here and you're up there. Terrible. Well, when I turned it on, it was so loud, and and it was so loud that the Amazon couldn't hear me tell it to turn it down. So I finally got up close to the Amazon and told it to stop, and then I couldn't get it to play anymore. So I tried telling it to play CNN, which blasted CNN all across the universe. And then I said, okay, something really strange is going on. But it would never play Mushroom FM again after that, so I had to listen on my phone. Oh, dear. I have heard that there might be some issues with some people playing stuff from TuneIn. Playing yeah, it was TuneIn because I tried to find another TuneIn radio station, but most everything I listen to is on iHeart, I guess. Yeah. So um, it could be a thing with a TuneIn API. It must have been, but API. it was so loud. I thought, oh, my God, this is just terrible. We've got an email, by the way, specifically for you hmm. from Sam Troyer, who seems to be under the impression that I don't read anything. <laughs> listen to this. Hi, Jonathan and Bonnie, it says here. Here are two books that Bonnie and other avid readers will be interested in. (laughs) (laughs) They're both available on BARD uh, and the BARD numbers provided. Oh, okay. The first is Elevator Pitch. I've heard of that, yeah. It's by Linwood Barclay and it's DB. Nine, that's a brewery in New Zealand. DB, DB nine? yeah, Dominion Brewery. No, oh, not okay. nine, just DB. Mm-hmm. Yeah, DB nine six four zero five. Just repeating that nine six four zero five. And this week's bonus number, soup. <laughs> four people. It continues are trapped. Trapped they are in a skyscraper elevator for an extended period, and uh, relate their interactions. Ooh. That's quite a cool concept. Mm -hmm. The second is called The Passengers. Oh, yeah, that was the one I was telling you about. You were telling me about this by John Mars. I think we talked about this when we were doing our COVID-19 shows. Mm -hmm. Uh, The DB for this one is 98514. That's 98514. And the bonus number, 18. No, no, I just Mm. made that up. But it says here, eight people... Uh, in supposedly hack-proof autonomous or self-driving cars. He says, I'm in the middle of that one, so I don't know the ending, but it's very grim. I'm sure. Thank you, Sam, in New York. There you go, a couple of reading recommendations. Yeah, because they're in the car and someone hacks in and locks all the doors and they're going to die, and it's all on film. Hey Jonathan, this is Bryant here. Hope you are doing well. 
In regards to what I'd like to see in iOS 14, I think one of the things that would be really cool is to have OCR built into VoiceOver rather than having to rely on a third-party app. Now, I'm not even sure if the Mac has something like this, but I think it would be cool since JAWS already has it, NVDA does, and even and even Narrator. Um, I don't know how possible this would be, but I would think it would be possible since I think all the hardware is there that you need to OCR stuff, and so it would just be nice to have OCR built into VoiceOver without having to rely on third-party apps. I also wanted to know what the most cost-effective way of converting cassettes into digital form is. Now, I don't have a cassette recorder anymore. What I used to do is plug a one end of a um, patch cord into my recorder and the other, or the one end of the patch cord into my cassette recorder and the other end into something like my Victor Reader Stream, and then I just record on there, but that's not possible anymore because my recorder broke. So I do know that companies offer this. You can send your tapes to them and they'll um, they'll convert them. But I also know that there are recorders on eBay that I can probably get for a reasonable price. So if you or any of the listeners have had experience with this, I like recommendations because there's some cassettes I need to convert. Thanks, Bryant. I have a cassette deck in my studio that I purchased a long time ago. It's one of those three-head cassette decks. It's got Dolby B and C. (laughs) Those were the days. And I just connect it to my mixer when I want to record. But I think there are USB cassette decks now, aren't there? Even like there are USB turntables. So you can probably find some software that does noise restoration. You're right, there are people who will do it for you. I believe Derek Lane, who knows his stuff when it comes to audio in the blind community, I think he's making a living in part out of restoration. I think vinyl was his specialty, but he probably would do cassettes as well. But it would be interesting to hear from people who have done this and what software and hardware they're using to do it these days. David Goldfield says, Jonathan, I use Teams regularly and am in total agreement with your assessment regarding the current state of its accessibility. Currently, what gains focus regarding the tab order is very inconsistent. If you navigate the tab key, it will consistently move to each focusable control. If you navigate with shift tab, however, You won't get to most of the controls, but you will find that many of them are skipped. One definite advantage of Teams is that it provides excellent support for virtual cursor navigation, regardless of whether you use JAWS or NVDA. You can navigate by headings to move from one message to another, and it's also quite necessary when someone places links within a message that you want to access. On the whole, Teams is very usable. What we do need are scripts similar to what we currently have with Zoom. As an example, we do need the ability to optionally disable incoming messages, alerting us to when someone joins or leaves a conversation. I predict this will happen, considering how many people will be using Teams. There are some very good JAWS scripts from Duck Lee already. I don't believe it has the enabling or disabling of notifications yet, but he is receptive to feature requests 
And some of those idiosyncrasies you talk about are addressed to some degree with features that Doug has built into the script. So you can go to dlee.org, and it's probably dlee.org slash teams. But certainly if you go to his website, you will find the JAWS scripts for teams there, and they do quite a few useful things. Hi, Jonathan. I like to see a few things for iOS uh, 14. Customize D&D. For example, I want to set some custom D&D for the times when I want to watch News Hub or One News in, in peace. So without being having to turn on Do Not Disturb Mode or turn the phone off when it's time for the news. Another thing I'd like to see is a revert mode. So if you install an app and you find accessibility is broken, you can then revert back to the previous version of that particular app that doesn't have the accessibility issues. And yes, I do have my auto updates turned off for that very reason. However, if you remember back in the old and days before iOS, I think it was iOS 9, where you'd use the iTunes to down, to store your app files. If you download an app from the App Store and you find the accessibility is broken, you could uninstall the app and install the one that, that was accessible. No, no you, you can no longer do that anymore. If you're advancing in years, if you're advancing in years, or perhaps you're a fan of those old 50s, 60s, and maybe early 70s sitcoms, you will remember the laughing track. And there was a bit of a rebellion against these laughing tracks to the extent that there would be these little messages that were actually spoken at the end of sitcoms in the mid to late 70s that would say, such and such a show has been recorded on tape before a studio audience, just to let you know that the people laughing at the corny jokes really were real, and they really were in the audience laughing, because before that, you would have these laughing tracks, and you can hear them on shows like, oh, I can't think of one. Now, did Get Smart have a laughing track? Sorry about that, Chief. A lot of them had laughing tracks. I'm trying to think of whether Bewitched had a laughing track. A lot of these things. Anyway, It just goes to show that the old adage is true about what's old is new again if you hang around. If you keep your fashions for long enough and you stay in the same shape, you will eventually get those old fashions out. Even if you got to the point where you wouldn't be seen dead out in public with them, they'll come back around again. Where am I going with this? I will tell you. Yamaha, you see. Yamaha has announced a plan to put fans back in the stadiums for major sporting events in the Northern Hemisphere summer, and it's all going to happen virtually because so many of the Northern Hemisphere countries are still locked down, at least as far as sporting events are concerned. The company's new smartphone app is called Remote Cheerer, and it's designed to allow sports fans to cheer from home in a way their teams can hear in the stadium. Genius, isn't it? Now, I have no idea whether this app is accessible or not, but apparently it looks and feels a bit like one of those soundboard apps. You may have seen these where you can load sounds into an app. They're particularly popular on the iPad, actually. And then you just touch the sound 
and off it plays. I've actually used it at weddings and things like that where I've been responsible for sound. But instead of just making a noise on your device, it actually integrates the cheers of potentially tens of thousands of fans and plays them on the loudspeakers at the stadium where their teams are playing. When fully integrated at the stadium itself, the application does a better job of emulating normal crowd noise than the short description suggests. For example, um, they actually took this thing to Shizuoka Stadium in Japan, and there were amplified loudspeakers placed on every seat in a section of the stadium. So instead of a bum, you know, a bum on the seat, there was a speaker on the seat instead. And if you'd bought a ticket to this game, so you could have, I don't know, you could, I don't know why you'd buy a ticket when you can watch it from home, but let's say that they were giving you a ticket and you were assigned seat B3, for example, sounds like mushroom stock. So you would have a speaker that belonged to you in seat B3, it would be plonked on your seat. And then you'd be at home with this app, pushing all the different cheer buttons that there are for different sounds that crowds tend to make. And your unique cheering would come through on your particular speaker assigned to your particular seat. They had somebody, an official from the stadium, describe this experience, and he said, at one point during the system field test, I closed my eyes, and it felt like the cheering fans were right there in the stadium with me. That's when I knew that this system had the potential to cheer players on, even in a stadium of this size. In addition to a preset selection of cheers and boos, which can be customized by the venue to be applicable to the teams that are playing, the app offers repeated tap options for the crowd to engage in rhythmic clapping or chanting, which should reproduce the imperfect timing of real-life chants and stomps. See, who needs to go to the game and have the hassle of all that public transport? You know, get your own popcorn in, get it delivered online, watch it on your TV. Uh, maybe you can get it on 5.1 if you have a good 5.1 system or even Atmos and be immersed in the experience from home with your little crowd cheering app and Yamaha's actually put out a little promotional video a little promotional blurb about this take a listen remote cheer powered by sound ud is a system to send support remotely made for anyone who cannot visit a venue due to responsibilities such as childcare or hospitalization those living in distant places or overseas, or simply those who enjoy public viewing or live streaming at home, possible by using a device such as a smartphone. Even during games played behind closed doors or games with a small audience, by using this application, fans can send their support from their homes directly to the stadium. Existing speakers in the stadium can be used, and a more realistic atmosphere can be created through placing dedicated speakers on audience seats. When watching TV or a stream online, viewers can tap to send applause, cheers, jeers, claps, and so on to the venue for different situations such as for goals. Cheers can also be customized based on the competition or event. 
Depending on the number of people and the number of times the buttons are tapped, the volume and excitement will increase. Viewers can also clap freely along with chants. We hope to create a new way of enjoying sports together by utilizing the remote support system, Remote Cheer, powered by SoundUD. Mate, never mind about the stadium. I'd love to have that in here. Imagine if on the live broadcast of Mosin at Large on Mushroom FM, you could use that app to respond with boos and cheers and jeers. It would change the whole nature of the game, I tell you. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a US number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin!